Welcome again to the Coot Street Podcast. This is Gary Wolf, and uh, this time of year, Jonathan Strawn and I have decided to do what we're calling an Advent edition of the podcast, where we look at books that we're recommending from from the past year, 2022, and talking to the authors of those books. And I'm delighted to have with us uh, today Aliette Godard, who's uh, The Red Scholar's Wake, actually is only out this month, I guess, isn't it? It's out in two days. Oh, it's not I mean, out yet. As, okay. of, as of you know, when we're recording this thing, okay. uh, so November twenty fourth. Excellent. Well, why don't you? I've, I've already put it on my recommended list, but I'll let you describe it rather than me. Um. Yes. Uh. Sure. So basically, it's a space opera romance where a sentient spaceship, who's also a pirate queen, enters an arranged marriage with a nerdy engineer. Um. <laughs> They're not meant to fall in love. They're meant to deal with space pirates' politics. Um, they do deal with space pirates' politics, and somehow, surprisingly, love does get in the way. Okay, and it's part. It's also part of the ongoing series, the Suya Universe, which I have, which has like sentient mindship and is broadly based on Vietnamese culture. Uh, but it's like a completely standalone novel. And I think it's the longest story you've written in this universe, isn't it? I think it's yes. I think it's the first novel length thing I've actually written in this universe. Well, one of the things that uh, is very helpful to readers new to your work is on your website. You have a whole historical background of how Chinese and Vietnamese culture basically conquered the stars, and and, um, and that's only implied in in in, in this novel. There's, so if if there is somebody who wants to start with your fiction, is there a place to start? I mean, they're all standalone in terms of plot, but where do we go to learn about uh, the, the background of this universe, other than your website? Oh, uh, that's a tricky... I've, I mean, a lot of the stories were, like, the ones where I basically took the background more for granted, right? Uh, yeah. I think um, um, I think On the Red Station, Drifting has a little bit more that's of the politics. That's what I was going to suggest. That's... Um, Going back, yeah. Forward. So it's it's mostly a kind of familial saga aboard a space station, but it also deals with the politics of empire uh, and a little bit more about how like station minds, so artificial intelligences that run stations uh, work. It, it, it all pieces together and seems to be remarkably consistent. So either you all have it clearly in mind from the beginning, or you have a chart somewhere. I have a notebook. Um, okay. I've lost it, but I'm sure it's somewhere. <laughs> so no, um, and I mean the notebook isn't. It's mostly so. I mean, part of the concept was that I was going to have this huge sandbox in which to play with. So what I mostly wanted to keep consistent was not the characters uh, or the locations because, like, they tend to vary from place to place. What I wanted to keep consistent was, um, small and large things. So there's, like, entire pages about, like, units of time, uh-huh. um, units of length. How do you count, um, um, the Matjok, which is, like, it's the, the Mahjong game, the Vietnamese Mahjong games, right? How, what kind of yeah. games do you play? Uh, and then there's a couple of maps of like important places of so a place that does come up fairly often is the scattered pearls belt, which is a string of asteroids, um, um, a kind of, like our string of asteroid, like an, an actual asteroid belt. Um, the red scholars wake is also set among asteroids, but it's among Trojans. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a different kind of, um, asteroids. Yeah, well, um, and so I, I do have like, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. What were we saying? I was just going to say, I had a conversation with somebody about it, uh, 
being about as pure space opera in terms of setting, because in the Red Scholar's Wake, they never land on a planet at all, really. They have the Citadel, which is kind of this area yeah. of a fortress, but but the second half of the novel is pretty much all space battles and yeah. So yeah, I mean, and it, yeah, it was a. I mean, I, I kind of. I wanted to set it in this kind of um, borderland, right, uh-huh. uh, of a place that would feel like it was on the edges of civilization. I'm using, like, you know, quote marks around that because, like, obviously that's a very loaded word. But right. I, so having it set in those two sets of Trojan asteroids and around a planet, which, like, the Fire Palace is a planet, but nobody can go on it right. because it's in- inhabitable completely. Um, so I, I thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was cool, basically, <laughs> as well. It's also interesting that um, that you've been playing with, with genre in a way. I mean, obviously, space opera, but there, you've, you've written a couple of detective stories, really, a uh, fairy tale. This one you actually labeled a romance in the subtitle, uh, which strikes yep. me as being a kind of declaration. I'm going to try this genre now. Um, well, I mean, part of it was that I also wanted to make sure that... Um, like we had a discussion when I was publishing it and we wanted to make sure that it felt accessible. Right. And I was a little worried when we initially set it up. Um, my like uh, Lisa, who's um, doing the publication, put it down as like a Suya universe book and it ended up at like a Suya universe number five. And I looked at it, and I was like, nobody's going to buy this book. <laughs> so it was also a very pragmatic decision in the sense that I was like, I actually want to make sure that it to signal that it's a standalone book. Yeah. Uh, but I also do want to make sure that we get the genre, right? And I know this is a discussion we had with Gillian as well in the UK, right? Yeah. Whereas Gillian was like, well, should we talk about the romance? And I was like, I mean, we can try not talking about it, but I think most people are going to read chapter one and go, no, if they're not interested in romance. So I think I think we might as well be very mm-hmm. obvious yeah. about the signaling and obvious about the fact that it does have, you know, it is space opera but the main plot the a plot is a romance um but it was i mean it, and it was very interesting when i was because like the so my agency's publishing it in the in the u.s and so i got to brief the cover and part of the cover briefing was i want to make clear that you have the two characters on on the cover right let's go on to the questions we had on the list one is uh, what have you been reading lately Oh, a lot of nonfiction, a lot of cookbooks. It's like that time of year. It's December. Yes. Um, so I've been reading, um, but like fiction-wise, um, I really enjoy uh, T. Kingfisher's Nettle and Bone. Um, yeah, which is this kind of like very dark, very self-aware uh, fairy tale. Um, re- I mean, it, it's not a retelling per se, but it sort of like manages to like merge several classic uh, classical figures and to come up with something that feels about as dark as the original Grim Tales, and really that's a compliment. <laughs> Are there any? Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing I've been doing is I've been reading a lot of romances. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and so the one I've been, well, some of the ones I've been enjoying, um, I read Rosaline Palmer Takes the Cake by Alexis Hall, which is uh, it's basically a romance that's happening on the set of um, a baking competition. And it's huge fun. So you, you get to see the different contestants being pruned out. Like It's a bit like, you know, the great British baking show, but like with a romance in it. Are these, uh, just out of curiosity, are they, these are labeled as romance. These are generic romances in the sense that they 
Yeah, there's there's no this one that has no genre elements. Okay, yeah. I, I did read Proper Scoundrels by Ali Therin, which is a paranormal, right? And it has like like one of like one of the characters a magician and so on and so forth. And there's a, there's a use of magic. Um, and so that one is like feels more like both fantasy and a little bit alternate history because it's happening in Paris around the turn ish of the century and New York as well. Yeah, I know very little about romance as a genre. A friend of mine in the building here actually is a writer of Harlequin romances and goes to the Romance Writers of America. And the sheer number of categories they have in the RWA is is imposing. So uh, if people get confused about where to start with science fiction, I would have no idea where to start with romance. Yeah, I mostly find mine through friends' recommendations, uh, yeah. basically. I just like, you know, or sometimes with proper scoundrels, it was like Stephanie Burgess, who was basically, who wrote me uh, a message and said, I think you would really like that one. And I got back to her about like two days later and was like, yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> Are there any seasonal books that you like to return to this toward the end of the year or books that you like to recommend or foist upon people this time of year? Um, well, this time of year, yes, I haven't. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to have time to reread it, but I always try to reread Rock the Top Father by Terry uh-huh. Pratchett. Okay. That is... Which is... Is the scene? Yeah, the TV series... The th- is, I've seen that. It's not bad. Oh. It's not It's it's not bad. I mean, I, I preferred Going Postal as like an actual adaptation, mostly because it's hot Charles Dance as the patrician. And uh-huh. while he is in no way or shape like physically similar to Vetinari in the books, he just has the sheer like presence of like i can totally believe this man would like you know cut my throat if it was convenient for the city kind of vibe which is exactly what you're asking for the role absolutely um but i thought hogfather was like really good um and i guess it you know i I have a great deal of affection for that book in particular i think like the seeing the interplay between susan um and death and you know what family actually means Uh and what actually you know trying to work with each other um, the discussions about the nature of belief, um, about the stories that we tell children and what they actually, you know, what do they actually mean and what lessons are we trying to teach and what is important and not important. Uh, and the other thing I think it absolutely nails is like how creepy most kids' imaginary worlds are mm-hmm. when you're an adult, right? It's just like if you just think about it for two minutes, it's just like, yeah, it's kind of creepy. There's a tooth fairy, actually, right? Right. What does and, he do with all those teeth? I think he's got a sensitivity. I think other people have. Remember, Bradbury was very sensitive to how creepy kids. Yeah, yeah. Bradbury's yeah. Bradbury's the other person like who managed to make. I I can't remember which story of. I think it was one of the Venus stories I read, right, where they are trying to like stumble somewhere in the rain and try to find like one of those things, but um, oh, that's where they like. Yeah. But there's one of these, which is, I think it's one of the Mars store, like, is it? No, it has to be one of the Venus stories as well. When the the rains come back and there's a kid who gets locked in a, locked in a cupboard. It's set in Venus. It's uh, all summer in a day, I think, is the title. Yeah, yeah. Which, like, has stuck with me for, like, 25 I mean, years ever since I, I, I first I read, read it. it. Day and, uh, I was looking at the Library of America, Bradbury stuff. And these stories have very dark endings. I mean, the... the yeah. Kids, and I think, yeah, I think he really understood how fundamentally creepy like everyday life can be, and how I don't know how how very ordinary things that we never just stop to pause and look at actually, when you look at them, can turn out to be totally sinister. Absolutely, in a way that I found really interesting. Well, let's go to the final question What do we have coming from you 
in the coming year. And we know that there's going to be a sequel to, to the Red Scholar's Wake because you gave us a preview of it. Yes, I, I feel very proud of myself. For, <laughs> I insist, I, no, because I'm the one who was like, maybe we should put a chapter of the next book in this, in this one. So, you know, I, I, I feel very proud of myself. But so, yes, there's going to be a Fireborn of Exile, which is going to come out around November 2023. Uh, and it's basically, um, uh, what if Count, the Count of Monte Cristo was female uh, and Vietnamese, uh, and it was all set in space? Um and it's mostly focusing both on the revenge and on the consequences it has, not on the people who wrong the count, but mostly on their kids. Uh, and so the kind of how how do you reevaluate your relationship with your parents when your parents did that, yeah. right? Yeah. So so yeah, um, I'm really excited about that one. Um, I have a novella that's coming out from Subterranean. I don't think I'm allowed to announce anything specific about it, but uh, I think that's safe to say. Uh, that's another Suya novella. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't have a release date for that yet. Um, but, you know, I have seen some stuff and it's going to be very pretty. At some point, uh, I suspect readers, I, to some extent, the Red Scholar's Wake satisfies this, but you have such a large canvas and so many of the stories give us small slices of that canvas that, that the room you give, your, give yourself in a Red Scholar's Wake to write a novel about it feels like, I, no, I would not ask anybody for a five or 600 page novel because I don't like to read them, but there's a lot of room left in this universe for uh, exploring different genres. Are you, are you tempted to just turn it into some kind of epic? I... I don't know, not really, I think, because mostly I think part of the appeal for me is like doing those fairly, like, I realize it's really ironic considering like Red Skull is Wake, but to me it's actually a fairly small scale and intimate story because of the focus on the relationship rather than on like the overall politics. Uh, and to me that's part of the appeal of the universe is actually focusing on like people, right? And yeah. what it means to them to be living in those times. And I'm a little, I guess I'm a little worried that if I went epic, I'd have to lose that focus. I think that, but, you know, who can tell? No, I think it's very wise. And there's a, fa- there's a phrase that I like that is uh, uh, from a British critic, I think Patrick Perinder, who called stories like these epic fables, stories which were standalone focused stories, which implied an epic uh, structure that is never really explained. Cordwainer Smith was one example. You get a sense of this yeah. massive universe. Mm-hmm. But every story is focused on a particular character or relationship. And in some cases, a lot of cases, actually, in the case of Smith, romance as well. Mm. And I, I always thought uh, that that's very appeal. It was very appealing to me in, in Smith's instrumentality stories. It's very appealing to me in the Zuyu universe is that um, you're not trying to encompass the whole universe in a single story. Mm. But, uh, but the more we read, yeah, the, more, no, I... the more we fill in the background ourselves. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. But we're past the time that I promised I'd keep you, uh, so I want to give you another uh, round of thanks for having given us the Red Scholar Week. Again, our guest today has been Aliette Boudard. We're recommending the Red Scholar's Wake, which is now available. Well, two days from now, depending. No, actually, it'll be available before this is, is broadcast. So it's available now. Uh, thank you, Aliette. Thank you so much.